You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 26th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. There is a wider issue as to whether or not governments and central banks can really use the blockchain technology and sort of almost marginalize the digital currencies. Bitcoin takes a tumble as Chinese authorities promise to crack down, but are cryptocurrency and authoritarianism mutually exclusive? My guests Pippa Malmgren and Linda Yu will discuss that and the day's other news, including a new poll indicates disparity between Germans' perceptions of America and vice versa. Is this European snobbery or American naivety? And ride cancelled. Is it the end of the road for Uber in London? Plus... These days, in contrast to the original aim of boosting footfall in shops, people are increasingly migrating online for the best bargains, not to mention shorter cashier queues. Black Friday cometh, we say resist. I'm Andrew Muller, Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by Linda Yu, broadcaster and author of The Great Economist, and Pippa Malmgren, co-founder of H Robotics and former economic advisor to US President George W. Bush. Well, let's start with discouraging news for any listeners who may have punted their life savings on Bitcoin in the last few weeks. The world's most popular cryptocurrency has tanked roughly 30% in the past month, a movement remarkable even by the standards of volatility to which Bitcoin customers should have become accustomed. A contributing fact it appears to be a new crackdown on cryptocurrency by China, itself something of a handbrake turn from what seemed a pro-blockchain stance outlined by President Xi Jinping in a speech just last month. Um, Linda, even leaving aside questions as to whether China is fiddling Bitcoin deliberately for fun and or profit, has China figured out whether or not it likes it? I do think there's an absolutely clear line, but I think China, like many others, are um, there's a control issue that's more prevalent in China. But a lot of central banks in particular are looking at cryptocurrencies. And what they're doing is they're separating the digital currency from blockchains. They're actually two different, they're part of the same thing, but they're actually two different bits of technology. Mm. So think of a digital currency. So, you know, so Bitcoin, for instance, operates on, you know, mining nonces and then having essentially establishing a public ledger. The technology behind that ledger is the blockchain technology, which is very attractive for central banks, for um, those who run payment systems, because that multiple verification is actually something that could really change electronic payments. So, of course, they're all looking at that. But Bitcoin itself has had its ups and downs, as you've been saying, and it's actually one of what thousands of different kinds mm. of digital currencies, cryptocurrencies. Um, so I think I would probably say that, you know, yes, part of it is control because there's private money. But at the same time, I think there is a wider issue as to whether or not governments and central banks, and some of them actually are looking into issuing their own digital currencies, can really use the blockchain technology and sort of almost marginalize the digital currencies. Because, by the way, those undermine 
monetary policy if they become very large, and then it's harder for them to control the money supply, for instance. We're not even nearly there yet. But their tech aspects, I think, are fascinating. Hey, Pippa, I guess what we're seeing here is a, a variation on a, a battle we're seeing on many fronts all over the world, this uh, attempt by governments and regulators to keep up with technology. And it, it's usually a, a losing race, at least in the early days of any new technology for governments and regulators. But do you see big differences in the way China is responding to this uh, and the way that the United States has so far responded to the idea of cryptocurrency? So uh, let me back up a little bit. Um, so China's announced that they want to issue a national sovereign cryptocurrency. In other words, they want to move their money system to be completely digital and electronic. Now, it, we tend to think digital and electronic money, we equate it with personal freedoms, mm. that this is connected to, as Linda says, this other technology called blockchain, which means a distributed ledger of information, multiple verifications from third parties, and that makes it sort of uh, guarantees your personal freedom more. But that's not true. Actually, the reason I think China likes the idea of a national sovereign crypto and they like blockchain is because it will allow the government to watch every single movement and transaction of every citizen. It is an incredible surveillance mechanism. Now, in the West, do we use it in the same way? No, it can easily be used to enhance personal freedom. So it cuts both ways like most technologies. Mm. You know, a car can be very useful for taking you somewhere and it can kill you both, right? It's, technology is always both. But I do think in the States, we take this view very typically, particularly the government, that China is using these kinds of technologies to um, manage their citizens in a very dictatorial way. And if you step out of line, it becomes very visible very quickly with this new social credit system, which is based on these same ideas. But in the West, are we not doing the same thing? Because Amazon is scoring you and Uber is scoring you and Facebook is scoring you. And this is creating to a sort of um, digital twin of yourself that is being managed, that is also having its freedoms curtailed because as you behave in certain ways, that affects what mm. is your insurance rate, for example. So the bottom line is we are, are using these technologies assuming that uh, blockchain must mean more freedom when in fact it can mean much less freedom. And so we really need to think philosophically about what are these technologies and how can they be deployed in both directions? Linda, is that right there possibly the appeal of this um, whole realm to the Chinese Communist Party, which which is, does not have a history of tolerating that which it cannot control? Mm. Yes, the control element is why it is that, um, you know, when I was saying that for a lot of central banks is the blockchain, but for some mm. central banks, including um, not just China, but also I think one of the Scandinavian central banks, they're I issuing their own digital currency. It's about controlling the money supply. So if you think of it in a Western sense, controlling the money supply is the aim of monetary policy. If you don't know how much money there is, interest rates are the price of money. So you need, there's an element of that there. For China, it's just about control. <laughs> it's about, <laughs> you know, a monet it is, that is, um, they don't want to, you know, they have um, obviously a, a political system where they do do a lot more surveillance. And actually, um, 
what China has to do is to keep up with where the trends currently are. So people in China already use so much electronic payment that the Central Bank of China had to issue a notice the other day telling merchants that paper money was legal tender. You have to <laughs> accept it in stores. And so, you know, it's already the case you could just take out your, we, you know, your WeChat or your, you know, Alipay and you could buy almost anything online. Um, and the question is now you change that currency um, from fiat money into digital currency. That's not itself uh, the biggest switch. And, you know, Pippa's right in terms of data concepts. There are different data concepts. So one simplified way I was told the difference is that in China, the state owns your data. In the United States, companies own your data. In Europe, we own our data. That's a nice one. By the way, Australia has announced that they're going to make cash illegal as of 2020. <laughs> It'll be the economies. cashless yeah. economy where we go entirely digital and electronic money. And I think it's a test case for mm. the rest of the G7. Yeah. Just a final thought on this, though, Pippa. Have we yet understood, and by we I mean people who've actually become accustomed to setting monetary policy and running economies under the old model, understanding how disruptive this is going to be when it becomes a mainstream thing. We should acknowledge that Bitcoin, despite the battering it's taken in the last few weeks, is still very seriously up this year overall. It's nearly doubled. Mm. When Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies get to that point, and they will get there, where they just become a thing that most people have, like most people have credit cards and debit cards, is that going to change the way that governments manage economies? It is, and it's one reason I think the governments are saying, wait a minute, why don't we have a sovereign government-led digital cryptocurrency and displace all these private enterprises that are doing it. Now, whether they'll achieve that is a different thing, but they want to crowd them out. Um, and they do, I think, recognize something very profound to, to Linda's earlier point about monetary policy. If monetary policy traditionally is about managing how much money is actually in circulation, mm. and you know we've had trouble measuring this now for decades, right? It used to be that you could count how many pieces of paper were five-pound notes. Uh, then it became <laughs> harder with checks, and then it became harder with you know uh, fund management tools. And basically, these days they call. Um, you know, monetary policy, they, it's like, um, uh, they call it Zed because they can't even measure it really properly. But here's the deal with digital. How do you double the money supply? Answer, hit one key on a keyboard. How do you have the money supply? Answer, hit one key on a keyboard. This is a completely different world when you can print money digitally and you can do it immediately. And I don't think that we have thought about what are the consequences, the theoretical consequences of this. Linda Yu and Pippa Malmgren will be back with more from you both in just a moment. But first, Monocle's Ben Rylan is here with some of the other stories we're following today. Riot police have used water cannons to disperse anti-government protesters in Georgia's capital, Tbilisi. Thousands of people have been demonstrating outside the country's parliament in a bid to reform the electoral system. Activists say the current rules favour the governing Georgian Dream Party. Senator Elizabeth Warren has accused her Democratic presidential rival Michael Bloomberg of trying to buy American democracy. Bloomberg, who is 77, entered the race at the weekend and has pledged to spend his huge personal wealth on his presidential campaign rather than relying on donations. And Russia could be barred from hosting games at next year's European Football Championship. It follows a recommendation from the World Anti-Doping Agency Committee. It's also understood that Russia faces being banned from taking part in next year's Olympic Games in Tokyo. 
I'm Ben Ryland. That's what's making news. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Ben. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Mullet here with Pippa Malmgren and Linda Yu. And let's now consider the runes scattered by a new survey organised by the Pew Research Centre in Washington, D.C. and the Kerber Foundation in Hamburg, looking into perceptions in their respective countries of the relationship between the United States and Germany. Broadly, it discovered that most Americans thought the relationship was good and most Germans thought it was bad. There seems to have been a sharp dip in German positive about the relationship in around 2017 for some scarcely imaginable reason. Uh, Linda, surveys like this basically always a referendum on what Europeans think of a given American president. Well, certainly, I think in terms of what the United States president says, I think there is, um, (laughs) you know, a lot of this is obviously related to the criticism that Germany has come under, not just in terms of, um, you know, the NATO contributions, but also, um, you know, President Trump has uh, specifically said he's very unhappy that there's a lot of um, Mercedes on the streets of New York, and he doesn't see a lot of, you know, GMs or Fords um, in Germany. So it's become quite personal um, in economic terms, specifically with respect. You'd like to think he might have pondered the reasons for that. Um, well, we probably don't have time to go into this whole, you know, pondering thing. But I think, you know, but I think the overall um, picture is one in which Germany, being really the dominant economy in Europe, um, is at the forefront of a, you know, I would say discord with the United States over a range of issues. Um, for instance, um, you know, the U.S., you know, not just in terms of... Um, you know, NATO, but in general saying, um, you know, we are no longer going to underwrite the defense of other countries. You need to pay your fair share. There's a big part of that, which is a change in the United States. So I would guess I would probably say Germany being sort of the, you know, the leader in many ways in terms of the uh, the European uh, position, um, you know, they're coming up at a time when the consensus between the across the Atlantic um, has broken down and there's going to be a re-examination of it. And, you know, and if you've been the recipient of, um, you know, um, support um, in terms of security and others, you're probably you are you are going to react to that. And I think that is where this at. So I'd extend it beyond this president. I think there was building up for some time. And I think it'll continue regardless of who's in the White House. It is this new transatlantic relationship that needs to be forged. Pippa, though, it strikes me that this survey and surveys like it do just often reflect quite a gulf in the way that Europeans and Americans in general regard politics, because the usual rule is that Democratic presidents are much more popular in Europe uh, than Republican presidents. The the president you worked for, Mm. for example, George W. Bush, even when he was popular-ish in the United States, was extremely unpopular in Europe, certainly in Western Europe. There were were pockets of affection for him, I think. He's more popular now. They're like, could you bring him back? Well, yes. Funny (laughs) funny that. One of Donald Trump's unarguable accomplishments has been the the burnishing of the reputation of the 44 presidents who preceded him, Mm. all of whom now relatively look like like absolute geniuses but <laughs> is that just a thing that you can't really do anything about that the, the 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 european political spectrum broadly tracks further left than the american one well that used to be true but america's moving left pretty quickly now <laughs> uh and again it, another one of donald trump yeah you know uh, it's almost you know it's unrecognizable uh from a traditional perspective. So, yeah, the Democratic Party is definitely moving much further left these days. 
but look, you know, there's this, this. You have to step back and understand that when the American president says something even over Twitter, that is all over the news mm. in Europe. When the German president says something, or the German chancellor says something, yeah, no one sees this in most of America. They're, they think international news is when you live in Kansas and they talk about what happened in Indiana. <laughs> Seriously, you know, it's a big country. It's very inward looking. Um, the bulk of the population are not reading the New York Times. They are not. It's a very tiny circulation. So when you ask the, this kind of a poll question, I'm like, okay, but who did they ask? Because most Americans would be like, literally almost, where is Germany? You know, they... they I see, I, I'd risen heroically above making any such assertion, yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you said true, that. But it's true. But it's true. And, I, and I, I don't mean that to say that the Americans are ignorant. It's that their priorities are different. They're focus of their attention is different. Um, and this helps explain why people don't understand the people who support Trump, because they have a different set of priorities that are far more local in nature. And that's why they buy into the, why are we paying for these people over there and their security and defense? Why don't they hold up more of their fair share? That's why they're um, also... Uh, sympathetic with the view that, yeah, why are there so many Mercedes? How come our cars aren't working? And, you know, I, I remember I sat next to somebody who was really senior at Ford, and I said, why don't you make Fords in America that are like the ones you have in Europe? The ones in Europe are kind of like Mercedes, right? And the ones in America are very American in their feel. And he said, the market's not there for it. And so it's interesting. The car companies have already decided what an American wants, and yet what are the Americans buying? Not American cars. Well, I'm glad you moved us onto the subject of motor vehicles because mm. it is a seamless gear change into that seamless gear change. Uh, because <laughs> finally, on today's news panel, it is a case of taxi for Uber, at least in London, at least provisionally. Uber has lost its license to operate in London again after the regulator Transport for London found that it had committed repeated safety failures. Uber vehicles will remain available, however, while Uber appeals again. Um, Linda, as I'm subtly suggesting there, this is not the first time that this has come up uh, for Uber. It seems like a really simple question, but is there a good reason why Uber doesn't just pull itself together? <laughs> <laughs> so you might ha you might recall, um, Andrew, there's a few issues at the top of Uber. <laughs> well, indeed so. But, but this, this would be part of my... I mean, I, I, I realise that my proposal needs specifics, but that would be part of the whole pulling itself together plan. Um, actually, Uber, I think is under a great deal of pressure to do just that. Um, you know, all joking aside, I think they have serious competition in the United States from Lyft, mm -hmm. um, and they have serious competition in China from Didi. Mm -hmm. um, they have a lot of competition in different places. So I think, you know, partly it is the way the company is run, it's the culture of the company, it's about the competitive landscape. But I think their issues in London are so long-standing, it does beg the question, if they want to operate here under these regulations, um, you know, I, I think they probably need to do more to address the, what, the 14,000 <laughs> violations that uh, TFL discovered in terms yeah, of it, their it, it, and, and those are the ones that were discovered. It, it, it does not appear to be the odd isolated problem. No. But that, that point Linda raises, Pipper, about a culture, is there still a general view among Silicon Valley firms that, that rules are for other people? I, well, I think their view is, look... 
they're they're creating matching systems, right? Ways in which people can connect for services and for the transfer of goods. Um, and that doesn't matter whether it's a, a taxi app where you pick up a passenger or a dating app where you pick up a date, right? They're all <laughs> kind of the same thing. They're matching together and disintermediating uh, the folks who were in between before. So that's a money-making enterprise, and they're focused on that money-making enterprise. But because it's so effective, it's so profitable, so much money has been invested. The question is, did too much money go maybe to the wrong players? As you say, there are other options now. Lyft is one of them. But there are lots of other competitors. And now people are going, actually, Uber does not equal all taxi matching systems. There are others. It's a bit like restaurants. If you if you have a restaurant that's violated the code, you've got a lot of people with food poisoning, the, the authorities shut it down. That doesn't mean all restaurants are shut down. And it's the same thing here. So it's an arrogance, uh, but it's also a kind of the way the money moves. The money moves into the idea because Uber was first. They got a ton of money. But now that it's not working so well, the money is beginning to disperse to other players. Linda, if we try to close on a uh, an optimistic note, is it possible that as a result of this, even if Uber do somehow get their license back and carry on operating, that some of their rivals who are not yet as big as Uber might be able to regard not being terrible as a kind of competitive advantage? <laughs> um, there's already, I think, um, you know, competitors in the space, the private car hire firms. But I think the you know, the, the challenge um, is specific to uh, to how London is. You know, if you talk to the drivers, there are congestion charges they're worried about. It's, there's a whole range of things which are different for different cities. But certainly, being first in this market, Uber had the advantage. And that advantage is receding. We see it not just in this space. You also see it, for instance, in the problems that WeWork has in the co-working space. They were also one of the biggest, if not the first. And so you're beginning to see what I could describe as uh, creative destruction, where you have this competition among tech companies, and um, and it's a healthy thing actually to have, um, and we ought to welcome a greater widening of the market and getting more in who can do things, you know, cheaper for people with better technology. You know, they see the space, the opportunity, and I actually think it's better for consumers if we did have more competition in this area. Um, but I hope that's what we're beginning to see at this stage of the tech companies. Linda Yu and Pippa Malmgren, thank you both. In a moment, we'll be asking if Black Friday is really something that the world needs. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. This week ends with Black Friday, the annual consumer fest before Christmas that for some reason has a reputation for fielding bargains. Here is Monocle's business editor, Venetia Rainey, with more. You've probably seen the Instagram posts by now. The banners on the website are hard to miss, and I know you've been getting the emails. That's right. Black Friday is nearly upon us. Once a strictly American affair time to kick off the Christmas retail period post-Thanksgiving, this annual shopping extravaganza has well and truly gone international, inspiring discounts and spin-off events around the world. Now, I love a sale as much as the next person, 
But is this feverish orgy of impulse consumerism really what we want? For starters, it's bad for physical retail. These days, in contrast to the original aim of boosting footfall in shops, people are increasingly migrating online for the best bargains, not to mention shorter cashier queues. Nearly two-thirds of US consumers are planning to avoid the high street this year, whether to shop via websites or not at all, according to a report by customer experience company Genesis. Further, the big winners are usually the big companies. In the UK last year, the majority of Black Friday spending was online, and Amazon was the top performer, according to global data retail analysts. There's also the impact on the environment of all those deliveries and returns. Some 30% of goods bought online are sent back. Plus the frenzied grabbiness of buying that item before it sells out that you or your partner or your dog never really wanted. The whole thing leaves a nasty taste in the mouth. So, this year, how about putting a sense of occasion and purpose back into your festive shop? Ditch Black Friday and make time to check out your local high street seasonal offerings. Oh, and did I mention that Monocle is doing its annual Christmas market in Zurich and London? You can find more details online. We'll see you there. That was Venetia Rainey, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machelari and researched by Yolene Goffin and Sam Johannes. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>